And our text this evening will be Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. This is the very Word of the living and true God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would cause this word to grow deep in our hearts, that we would learn even from these instructions to the church at Ephesus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wished that certain things came with an instruction manual? Like, Children, like your house. Nowadays, even your car, as the instruction manual isn't exactly as helpful as it could be. We long for these sorts of things because we want to have a better experience. We want to see things go well. And another thing that we might wish an instruction manual would be obtainable for would be the church. Well, sure, there's there's the Bible and there's all these biblical principles and we seek to, to follow the scriptures, but wouldn't it be nice if someone could tell us exactly what we were supposed to do? Better yet, wouldn't it be perfect if Jesus would come and tell us what we, Christ Church, should do in Katy, Texas. Well, I have to tell you that Jesus has done that. That He has given us instructions in His Word for what we are to be like as a church. And over the next few months, we will be seeing this as we read and study together the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, one thing that I want you to be aware of as we go through these letters 
is I want you to resist the temptation that will come up many more times in the book of Revelation. And that is to try and play mathematical symbology with it. To put an equal sign in and to say, well, Ephesus must equal the church in this century and Smyrna must equal the church in that century or this kind of church or that kind of church. I want you to notice that these letters are written to all of these churches. That these letters are for all of us. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to the church. I would like you to have an ear that hears. And as we see all of the challenges all of the difficulties that we face throughout each one of these letters that we hold on to the things that Jesus tells us to hold on to. That we repent of the things that our Lord tells us to repent of. And so it's in each one of these letters that I think we will see good, sound, practical advice for Christ's church. We begin with the church at Ephesus. And we'll be seeing three things this evening. First, we will see the address to the church. As our Lord Jesus Christ addresses the church at Ephesus. Secondly, we will see his evaluation of the church. He doesn't just address the church, he evaluates it. And then finally, we will see his commands to the church based on that evaluation. An address, an evaluation, and commands. Well, let's begin then by looking at the address to this church. John hears to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This church is at Ephesus. Now, some of you may be familiar with this city. It was a very large, wealthy, prosperous city in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. If you think of that area of Turkey, that peninsula that looks kind of like uh, a rectangle, It's about in the middle, north to south, on the coast. The actual city of Ephesus is not where it was located in ancient days. It actually is moved inland some ways. But it still stands as a city. It was probably the most important city in Asia Minor. You remember me speaking a few weeks ago about Antioch as a city being one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire in the area of Palestine and Syria. Ephesus is a similarly important city. It was a city of at least a quarter of a million people. It was a very wealthy city because like almost every wealthy city, it was at the crossroads of various trading routes. But it was also like Antioch and other Roman cities in another critical way. It was a thoroughgoing pagan city. It was the center of the cult of the Greek goddess Artemis, known by her Roman name, Diana. Some of you may recall, and we will look at in time to come, the passage in Acts. For round about the space of an hour, the whole city yelled, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The Greek goddess of fertility was celebrated in the city of Ephesus. 
But Ephesus was also pagan in the sense that it became a center of the cult of the Roman emperor. There were at least four temples built to four Roman emperors in the city of Ephesus. And this would be a cult in which after the, typically after the emperor died, the Roman Senate deified him. That is, they made him a god. And he was then entered panoply of worship of Roman citizens. And it was more actually a political mechanism than a religious one because if the emperors are sort of gods in the waiting, all the more reason to obey them and do everything they say. Now, this sounds a bit odd to us because we don't have this kind of experience in our day and age, but you need to understand the power that it held over people. And it was even something that was recognized by the Roman authorities that was political. There's story of one Roman emperor who, upon being ill, when he was asked by his attendants how he was, he said, oh, I think I feel myself turning into a god. Because he knew that death was near. So this is the city in which the church finds itself. What kind of a church is it? Well, it is a church that has been around for some time. It was probably founded by Priscilla and Aquila, as we see in Acts chapter 18. You remember that great husband and wife duo that taught uh, Apollos and spread the gospel and built up the saints? They were probably involved in the founding of the church. And then later on, Paul spent several uh, years there, and then he handed off that church to his right-hand man, Timothy. So this was a church that was in good hands and was established. At this point in time, the church was about 40 years old. Now when something, a nation, a company, a church, is about 40 years old, what does that mean? What has changed in 40 years? It's a generation, isn't it? You go from... Fathers to sons, mothers to daughters. And the Bible is full of challenges of going from one generation to the next. We see the perhaps the greatest example of this in the drop-off from the time of Joshua to the time of the judges. One generation it goes from following the Lord to every man doing what is right in his own eyes. So this church is on the brink, as it were. It is perhaps somewhat self-satisfied. It is getting into a routine. And that's easy to do even when you have high hopes, even when you are committed to mission. We see that even in our midst as we have been now in this building about a year and a half. Things are different than when you're setting up and taking down chairs. There is a normalcy that will set in. And we need encouragement. So this is the city... And this is the church. And they're addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you, as we go through chapters 2 and 3, looking at the letters to the churches, I don't want you to forget the image of Jesus Christ that we get from chapter 1. Jesus who sees everything. Jesus who is holy beyond looking at. Jesus who is stable. Jesus who has a sword. Jesus, who has come to judge the living and the dead. 
This enthroned, glorified Jesus Christ is the one sending these letters. And we see this because in each and every one of these letters, there is a phrase taken from chapter 1 and used in the letter. Look, for example, here at verse 1. Jesus writes as one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the lampstands. This is similar to what we see here in chapter 1. He goes about through the lampstands. He is in verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. He holds the stars in his hands. He is the almighty, glorified Jesus Christ. But remember too, that in chapter 1 we saw that Jesus came not merely to appear powerful, but He came to strengthen His church. So that's what He's going to be doing here in these letters. And He is one who is firmly in control. Look how He is described. He is the one who holds the seven stars and who walks among the lampstands. This word for hold is not the ordinary word for hold. It means more to cling to grasp, to firmly have in one's hand. Jesus is telling us that He has firmly in His hand the seven stars. He has these churches firmly in His grasp. They will never fall away. He is vigilant. He is looking out for His churches. And the true ambassadors are going forward. But He's not just in control. He's also present with His people Because he is described as one who walks. One who walks among the golden lampstands. And this word for walk is a participle. And a participle is an interesting grammatical animal. It is part verb, part adjective. And what it does is it describes the person. It describes Jesus here by way of activity. Jesus is known as the one who walks. He doesn't sit. He's not idle. He walks among the lampstands. He is out among His people. He is in the church. And you see, if we're honest, isn't it easy to forget that? We don't see Jesus, do we? We don't touch Him. We don't hear Him audibly. And it's easy to forget that Jesus is here in our midst that Jesus is strengthening us as a church, building us up. Jesus is the one who is found among His people. And as He is found among His people, He looks and sees what is going on. This is what happens, isn't it? Have you ever worked a job where a supervisor was out on the floor looking and seeing what was going on? He's not just out there just to cheer people up. He's there to say, hey, tighten that down. No, you can't do that that way. Okay, good. Now you've got it. You see, Jesus is out there looking, and he's evaluating as well. And he's evaluating this church in Ephesus in two main ways, in two main ways that he will evaluate each of these churches. First, by way of commendation or praise. And then second, by way of criticism. Let's look first at his commendation. He says to this church, I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The first thing that we see is that Jesus knows what is going on because he is with his people. Because he is walking among them, he knows them, and he knows what they are doing. Jesus is in relationship with his people. And he sees that they are hard at work. He says, I know your toil. That word for toil is a kind of work that is done with resistance. It is work that is hard. Have you ever done that kind of work? Work that you wish was over sooner rather than later? It's not the kind of work where you whistle while you work. This is kind of grunt while you work. Work. You try to get through it. You know it has to be done. You know it's important, but it's hard. And Jesus says, I know that you are working hard. Now, this alone is an incredible commendation for a church. Because far too often in our day and age, churches are not known for working hard. They're not known for memorizing the scriptures. They're not known for taking the word out in their neighborhoods. They're not known for studying the truth of God's word. They're not known for encouraging one another and working and building up. And the church here at Ephesus is hard at work. Hard at work in the face of trouble. They're active. But they also have to endure difficulty. Jesus commends them for their active work, but he also commends them for their passive work. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. You're waiting on the Lord, we might say. You're enduring all that is around you. Now, I know this is going to be a a great stretch for you, but but try and imagine with me being a church in the midst of a large city in which there was crime, in which there was idolatry, in which there was mocking of the Bible, in which there were things you didn't want your children to see. Wait a minute. That sounds a bit like Houston, doesn't it? So maybe we can identify with this church here in Ephesus and what it means to patiently endure through all the difficulties that we have. And you see, Jesus Christ commends us for this. You may think it's just getting on to the next day. You may think to yourself, why has God placed me here now? Why couldn't I have been born and lived in 1952? Why could, better yet, why couldn't I have lived during the time of the writing of the Westminster Confession when everything was perfect? Not. You see, we are called to patiently endure, and what you need to know as you endure the difficulties of every day is that Jesus is watching. And he's praising you. He's encouraging you. When you turn the channel to get away from some filth, When you speak to a neighbor, words of kindness. When you try and help and encourage others, Jesus is among you, he is with you, seeing and encouraging you. This is a commendation from the Lord. So they work hard, they have perseverance, but the thing that this church is best known for is its orthodoxy. Now, you'll recall at the beginning of... uh, Our time this evening, I mentioned to you not to try and mathematically equate churches and various things. But I want to say that just the way it's described, 
in my, to use a phrase from this morning, sanctified imagination, I imagine that this is the first Reformed church of Ephesus. Because if it's one thing that Reformed churches are known for, it's their orthodoxy. I mean, listen to the language. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. You go out of your way to search and find out the truth. Now, this is a commendation. This is something that we should be encouraged by. Not proud of, but encouraged by as a Reformed confessional church. That we are committed to the truth of God's Word. That we're committed to test what people say to make sure it's biblical. Don't let anyone ever, ever tell you you shouldn't do that. We're going to see what else we should be doing. But don't ever abandon what Jesus says is good for something else. Jesus says it is good to be orthodox. It is good to be true to the Bible. And he commends this church for it. And this is a church that needs to be aware and on its toes. They have trouble from the outside. You remember the stories in Acts chapter 19 of the the seven sons of Sceva. You remember the riot at Ephesus, those who were seeking to destroy the church. They had trouble from inside. Trouble that Paul said would come by the way of ravenous wolves. Those who would teach false doctrine. And our Lord even mentions one of these groups. This group is the group of the Nicolaitans. Now, who are they? Well, I have to tell you, there's nothing like reading commentators when the Bible doesn't give you enough information. Any sorts of people, including some people think that um, Nicholas, the proselyte, one of the first deacons, was the head of this group. The truth is we don't know. But we do know, and we'll see in a few weeks from another church, the church at Pergamum, we'll see that this appears to be a group that compromised with the world, that tolerated evil, that taught that in order to really change the world, you had to become a bit like the world. Now again, this is not something that is far from us, is it? We see this all the time in our midst. Christians saying, well, you know, in order to really reach people that are divorced and going through broken marriages, we should really be okay with a pastor that's divorced. That'd be good. Especially if he's got a radio ministry. Then he can reach more people. Or we say, you know, we need to build someone up who's fallen, who has is, who is cheated and stolen from the church, because that's a good way for him to minister to people who struggle with that sin. We see this all the time. Excuses made for sin as a way of a point of contact. And Jesus says that's not the way. The way is to hold to the truth of the Scriptures and to engage others, not to imitate them. Their orthodoxy is found in the fact that they test those who say they are apostles. Now, how do you know if someone is a true apostle or not? Well, typically there is a a two-main-point test. The first is... Is what they say true according to the Bible? And you can go chapter and verse for that. The second test is you want to see if there is fruit of the gospel in their life. Are they kind? Are they loving? Are they committed to others? 
Now I want you to see an irony here. This is the church that seeks to focus on orthodoxy and seeks to focus on rooting out false teaching. And one of the ways in which you do that is by looking at the Bible and looking at someone's life. There's only one problem for them. Jesus will now begin to criticize them. And they have a problem with their own lives. How are they going to test the fruit of others when their own lives aren't bearing fruit? Jesus says to them, I give you all commendation for your orthodoxy, but you need to fix something. I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does this mean? It could mean several things, and perhaps all of them. What does it mean to have abandoned the love that we have at first? Well, it could be the kind of love and fervor and zeal that we have for God. Have you ever been around a new convert when they talk about Jesus? If you have done that and not walking away a bit ashamed of your own speech and your own fervor and your own zeal, you've probably missed the point. When someone first comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom much is forgiven, he loves much. Jesus is constantly on their mind, on their lips. So it could be that their love of God is waning. It's cooling. It's not gone, but it's cooling. It could also be that their love of their fellow man is waning. They're not known in their community as a church that seeks to bring the love of Christ to the community. It very likely would include the fact that their love for each other is waning. You see, that goes hand in hand with love for God. It could be there's some petty quarrels breaking out. Or cliques starting up. Or perhaps there's just not that enjoyment of fellowship that they had before. Finally, some think, and I think this is true and also goes along with all of this, that their love of witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ is on the wane. That they don't want to take the mission out into their community and take the gospel. They have abandoned this love. Why? Perhaps is it because there's a climate of suspicion? They're trying to find out all the false teachers? Perhaps it's just hard to keep up that level of love. Or perhaps it's a lack of importance. A focus on love has moved down the scale as orthodoxy and orthodox testing takes over. And you see, there's an implicit criticism here that you have not passed on this first love to your children. And so the call comes to us, the challenge comes to us as a church. How are we building up our children? Are we teaching them? We must. Are we making sure that they know the truth and are orthodox? We must, Jesus said. But are we instilling for them a love for God? A love for each other? A love for the church? I've mentioned this to you before, but you need to hear it again. We do not have youth groups. We did not call a minister because we need to make your kids active. I can do that with a pad of paper or a video game. 
The reason we are committed to ministry to our youth, whether it is high school or middle school, or whether it is in children's church or VBS or Sunday school, is because we want them to learn to love one another. So that 40 years from now, Jesus will not walk up to us and say, I have this against you. That you have abandoned your first love. This happens all the time in churches. Any of you that are from or have ever been to New England have seen this. Churches are museums. The buildings stand and there is no congregation. I'm not talking about a small congregation. I mean no congregation. And there has been none for decades, if not centuries. Do we want that to be our legacy as Christ's church? then we must learn from the church at Ephesus. We must hear the words of Jesus. We must be people who have ears to hear. And we must never give up our commitment to orthodoxy, but we must also never give up our commitment to love. This is the commendation and the criticism. How do we do this? Perhaps you're sitting right there in the chair and saying, I know, I've, I've thought about this too. What will happen 15 years from now? How many of our children will still be in the church with their children? How many of them will be committed to the Lord? How do we do this? And we do this finally and briefly by following the commands to the church that Jesus gives. Look at what he says here in verse 5. Remember. Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Think back. One of the most important words in the Bible is remember. Even as we gather together on this Lord's Day, as we set aside a day for the Lord, do you remember how the fourth commandment begins? Remember the Sabbath day. You see, we are called to always have this in our minds, to go back to first principles. That is where we find our moorings. That is where we find solid ground. And it doesn't matter how far we have strayed. It does not matter how far we have fallen. Because do you remember what saved, what turned the prodigal son? As he sat eating the pig's food? He remembered. He remembered his father. And he remembered what he ought to do. And he remembered the love that he should have shown him. And he did the second critical thing. He repented. You see, we must remember our first works, but we must also take action. We must repent. We need to be active. It doesn't do you any good to sit and contemplate what might happen. You must act. And that act needs to be specific. You see what Jesus says? He says, remember therefore and repent and do. And do the works you did at first. Very specific. You remember, nobody grows in fuzzy land. Nobody grows with vague platitudes. You must remember, you must repent, and you must do. Because you see, this church was in danger of losing its identification as a church. That's how serious the situation was. If we remember, and if we repent, and if we do, what can we rely on? 
Jesus tells us here. We have a promise that we can claim. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if you hear, and if you remember, and if you repent, and if you do, you will conquer. And you will obtain eternal life. This is what the church is about. This is what you do when you are straying off the path. You get back on the path and you double your pace and you follow Jesus to the celestial city. The church in Ephesus was an effective church. It was a large church. It was an important church. But it was a church that was in need of love. By God's grace... We are an effective church. We are involved in our community. We are involved in our presbytery. We are involved in each other's lives. But we must never forget that we must be a church that has love. And we must constantly be reminding each other, calling each other to repentance as we journey together to the paradise of God. Let's pray.